That being said, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through a challenging sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. And to briefly recap, the main thing we've been seeing through this famous sermon is how Jesus has been teaching and unfolding what kingdom life looks like, right? Jesus is the king, inaugurating and talking about his kingdom. He talks about what it looks like from the inside out. And what he's been doing is we've been seeing themes like, hey, in the kingdom of God, relationships matter. So we've been seeing him hit on the topics of interpersonal relationships. We see that one of the things that Jesus really has a hard time with is religiosity, which I think a lot of us can agree with because we've grown up, a lot of us churched. And he says religious hypocrisy, people who think the kingdom's just about playing the act or doing things on the outside when your in, inside is not changed at all, that's not what the kingdom's about. And then last week, we entered the very relevant realm, particularly of us here in the Orange County, of materialism, treasures, money. Where do we place our treasures? And that theme of material goods and treasures is actually continued on in today's text. And so we are able to look in today's text understanding that the greater theme is the idea of money and material goods. So turn with me to our text today in Matthew chapter 6. It should be on your programs or if not in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 6. We'll read verse 25 to 34. And as you're turning there, it is a familiar text. It is a famous text. But I would often say it is not preached in context. And so as we turn there, hopefully we can see it in new light. So Matthew chapter 6, starting from verse 25. It's the reading of God's word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. If you had to pick one word to describe the general mental and emotional state of the majority of the people in not just our country but the world today, what word would you pick? Think about it. Just one word to describe the mental and emotional state of pretty much everyone in the world. I think a very formidable case can be made that the word would be this, the one that we saw here in today's text, anxious. We live in an anxious world. In fact, it's actually well proven and documented that one of the most prevalent, if not the biggest mental health issue that is literally spreading greater than a pandemic, facing our country in particular, potentially the world at large, is anxiety. It's anxiety. If you want proof, just Google top mental health issues. And list after list, you will see anxiety at the top of the list, if not the top three. And what's worth noting is that even though as a society we are advancing technologically, we are more innovative and we are more connected than ever before, it is without question our collective mental health, particularly in the area of anxiousness, 
it is deteriorating. It is going the opposite direction. In fact, you don't have to be a Christian to see that so many secular, professional, reputable sources say stuff like millennials are the most anxious generation. And a couple years ago, more recently, that was edited to say actually Gen Z is even more anxious than millennials. So we are getting worse. And what everyone agrees is what made a bad situation far worse was COVID. COVID literally poured lighter fluid on this already bad situation. You see, because during the pandemic, mental health came front and center, right? You see a lot of articles about it. You see a lot of news talking about it. And one poll even says that global anxiety and depression rose by more than 25% globally. That is crazy in the span of a year or two. Now, I don't want us to get lost in statistics or the macro view, so I just want to set the scene but bring us down to our context. I want to argue, I think a lot of you here in this room are anxious. How do you know you're anxious? Let me clarify what I mean by anxious. By anxious, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I think mental health is a very loaded and complex realm. That's not what I'm referring to. When I say anxious, I'm speaking more generally. Generally meaning when you're anxious, you are stressed. You are always filled with worry. You live in constant fear. And three simple questions to ask if you fit this category is number one, right now, are you stressed about something? Are you worried about something? Are you afraid of something? Pretty sure all of us are. This is why I love the Bible. Because anxiousness and worry are not modern problems. Jesus addresses it head on in our text today. In fact, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but did you know, and this fact has always been intriguing to me, the number one most repeated command throughout all of Scripture is not love. It's not obey. It is always, 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 don't fear. Don't be afraid. In the same realm of do not be anxious. It's almost as if God, the creator of all humanity, is aware that as humans in our fallenness, we are most prone to be filled with worry. It's almost as if he knows that. And you see the Bible, especially if you're not a Christian, it's not filled with fairy tales or archaic teachings or if you grew up in the church that, oh, these interesting Bible stories about how this guy killed a giant. Oh, these like, it's like Lord of the Rings almost. But I would argue the Bible is immensely in touch with reality and it is immensely practical if you would listen to what God has to say through his word. And so what does Jesus have to say to an anxious people? Not only back then, but to you sitting here today. And in order to answer that, We'll look at the text in three ways. Number one, we'll look at the problem of anxiousness. Secondly, we'll look at the arguments against anxiousness. And thirdly, we'll kind of talk about an antidote for it. And then I'll close with a couple practical applications. Okay, so first, what is the problem? Now let's get on the same definition of what it means. Again, to be anxious means you are a person who is overly concerned, overly worried. You are filled with an extreme uneasiness and distress perpetually. Usually it's something about an event or a certain situation with an uncertain outcome. And so with that definition, it is obvious why the pandemic raised anxiety in people. Why? Because things like this would arise in people's heads. What's going to happen to my job? Anxious because it's uncertain now. What's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to my family's health? Even going outside, I don't know what's going to happen. Will our country be okay in this political chaos and division? And so people became increasingly anxious because the level of uncertainty now like spiked. And again, it's totally justifiable to be concerned about those things. But to be anxious is not just to have an appropriate, responsible concern. It is to be over-concerned. 
to the point where it is now consuming you. It is mentally and emotionally debilitating in your life. In fact, did you know the root word for worry, it comes from this old English verb that has the picture and idea of strangling, choking something. That's why if you know in Matthew, Jesus says, you know what's going to choke a disciple? It's the worries of this world. That's what he talks about. And I think that's such an accurate picture I want you to have when it comes to worry because medicine, the Bible, and even personal experience all agree being anxious and filled with worry, it has a strangulating effect on an individual. Here's a few symptoms just to prove it. Those who are anxious experience restlessness, uncontrollable feelings of concern, increased irritability, sleep difficulties. People in our church tell me all the time, I have a hard time sleeping because I'm so anxious, I'm so worried. And anxiety has been linked to legitimate conditions like depression and even at worst heart attack. This is personal to me because my uncle passed away, my dad's older brother, at the early age of 40. Healthy guy, very healthy individual. And one day he passed away. And one thing he did have, even though he was physically healthy, was he was an anxious man, full of stress. He had three kids very early on. His marriage was a little tougher. He was the one that brought entire family members over from Korea. Imagine that immense amount of burden and anxiousness. And doctors all agree the only thing we could point to is this man was overly anxious. And it literally caused a heart attack for him. On a more uh, kind of side note, for me, early in college, I discovered that when I get stressed, I get random bald spots. So some of you guys on this side, you might notice, I literally have a bald spot right here, right now. And when I was in college, I was tripping out. Now I'm married, so I'm very secure, right? So Angela's, you know, she's covenanted, so I'm like, bald or not, you're stuck with me. So I feel good now. But before, that was a legitimate anxiety of mine. And when I looked it up, it says, amongst other things, one of the main causes is you're stressed. It's manifesting in ways. In other words, being anxious and worried is not harmless. It causes legitimate problems. In fact, I, I heard this fascinating thing the other day while I was preparing for this message. A lot of us may have heard the famous passage in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 to 6, where it says what? Trust in the Lord with all your understanding. Lean not on your own, right? And we all hear that verse. Nobody hears the two verses that follow. It's this beautiful idea that, hey, trust in God, don't worry, but trust that he's going to make straight your paths. But the two verses that follow, and a lot of the Bible does this, is it actually talks about why you should do that. It talks about a little benefit to trusting in God and not yourself. It reads Proverbs chapter 3, verse 78, do not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't trust yourself, but fear the Lord and shun evil, for this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now, it's easy to read that and think, what is this, like, archaic, figurative language, right? Nourishment to bones. Is this one of those, like, spiritual things that's going on here? The writer of Proverbs, is he, like, speaking all kind of, like, you know, fairy, folktale-y? It's easy to read it like that, isn't it? And most of us approach scripture like that. Like, it's kind of out of touch with reality, so there's, like, the spiritually side, but then there's, like, real life. Did you know there's actually a, a legitimate scientific medical study that shows that people who are more anxious and prone to worry have a lower and more brittle bone density. That is crazy. In other words, the Bible is literally saying trusting helps your bone health. And when you are not trusting, you're going to have bad bones. There's anxiety and osteoporosis have a link. And the more they're discovering that, the more they see that this is true. Now, is this coincidence? Or does the Bible happen to know something? See, Jesus in our text, that's what he's talking about. He knows what's going on. And he doesn't want us to live in that way. 
Now, in our text, the specific type of anxiety that Jesus would have been dealing with is anxiety over the basic necessities of life. I don't know if you caught it when we read it. Remember, most of the audience that Jesus was speaking to is not like us comfortable, middle-class, OC, like most of us sitting here. They were a lot poorer than us. So while we worry about, hey, what do you want to drink or what do you want to drink, uh, eat, they would probably be concerned, do I even have something to eat or have something to drink? We worry about, hey, what am I going to wear? They would be worried about things like, do I even have something to wear? Now, those are legitimate concerns, right? If someone's anxious about those things, I wouldn't judge them or condemn them. Food, water, and clothing are arguably the three most basic necessities of life. So Jesus, he's not saying, hey, don't care about those things. But he says, do not be anxious or overly worried about those things, right? In verse 25, that's literally how he starts. He says, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Now, especially for like parents who only have like pockets of windows, here's the main point Jesus makes in the text. It's very clear. It's do not be anxious. He starts it and it's littered throughout the text. Five times he says, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious. Why you're anxious, therefore do not be anxious. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're stressed or worried about something, isn't the last thing you want to hear somebody come up to you and say, hey, just chill out. Hey, don't worry. Uh, or if you tell someone, hey, I'm really stressed, and they just say, oh, it's okay, just don't stress. You know what I say in those situations? I don't say it out loud, but I say, you think I want to stress? I have reasons why I'm stressed. So you can't just come to me and say, hey, just don't stress. That's totally out of touch with my reality. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he coming with like a magic spiritual wand and saying, hey, just don't stress? No, because then it would be just verse 25. But what does he give? Verse 25 to 33, Jesus gives reasons and even better, arguments against anxiety for people in his kingdom. And the arguments are good. Point number two. There's four main arguments that I want to draw out from this text. And I try to make the arguments somewhat catchy so you'll remember them. Okay? So number one, the first argument Jesus gives is you, if you are a child of God, you are more valuable than birds and flowers. What? What does that mean? See, one of the main causes of worry for everyone back then and today is the idea of provision. Who's going to provide for me? Who's going to care for my needs and necessities? And you see, this is where it's important to know your Bible a little bit. Because deeply ingrained in the biblical narrative from the Old Testament to today is the conviction and testimony that the creator God is a God who provides. A God of provision. That one of the literal names of God in scripture is Jehovah Jireh, which means that he is a Lord who will provide. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament revolves around how people were in the wilderness and they needed food and God provided manna and food from heaven. And speaking to an anxious people who are worried about provision, Jesus uses this argument. He says, verse 26, I want you to look at the birds. They don't do much. They're not worried. They're not anxious. And yet, they're fed. Heavenly Father feeds them. And he says, look at the flowers and the lilies of the field. Look how beautiful they are. They are not anxious. They are not worried. And yet, even more than the most majestic king, they are robed in glory and splendor. And there's a lot that can be talked about this. I went deep in studying this about, like, bird flight patterns and, like, wild flowers. I don't want to bore you. But the message is clear, very simple here. What Jesus is doing is giving you the classic example argument of lesser to greater. Here's what he's saying. God cares enough... For birds and lilies to feed and clothe them, they're just birds and flowers. You are the crown jewel of God's creation. Created in the image of God. 
You are his beloved. Do you not know you're more valuable than birds and flowers? Do you not think that God cares to provide for you? Let me give you a more relevant illustration for me. Imagine if my son Ezra, 18 months old, came up, comes up to me. He doesn't talk right now, but imagine if he did, okay? And he's worried and anxious, right? He's like getting bald spots. And I'm like, oh, no, right? I feel so sorry for my son. He's coming up to me. And I asked my son, hey, Ezra, why are you so worried? And he said, father, I'm, he doesn't say that. <laughs> but he's like, I'm worried because I don't know if you're going to feed me or if you're going to clothe me. So I'm really anxious if I'm going to have food on the table and I'm going to clothes to wear. What I would say is, Ezra, come here. I'll put him on my lap. I said, Ezra, you see that doll over there? He has this doll, a Coco Melon doll, right, that we had to get him because every kid loves Coco Melon. They worship it. It's their king, right? So there's this doll over there, and I'll tell Ezra, I literally buy clothes and I feed that doll of yours. It's not even alive. It's an inanimate object, and I do that for him. You're much more valuable than a doll. That's literally the heart of the argument Jesus is making here, lesser to greater. That's number one. You're more valuable than virgin flowers. Number two, this is my favorite one that even no, whether you're Christian or not, it's really hard to refute this argument. Being anxious is a waste of time. That's what Jesus says. Now, this might sound a little off-putting, maybe even a little offensive to those who struggle with worrying a lot. But objectively speaking, it makes sense. Look what Jesus says. He's exposing the futility of a worry work. In verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life. Jesus is basically saying being anxious is utterly unproductive and impractical. That's what he's saying. If you actually look at the language here, some commentators, they actually look at the original language and they're saying, I think it's what it's saying is, which of you by being anxious can add a cubit to his stature? And so what they'll say is what Jesus is saying here is, if you're more like vertically challenged as a person, being anxious ain't going to make you taller. That's what they're saying. Or if you take it as written, it's saying, by being anxious, you're not going to get more hours in the day. Whatever the case, the message is the same. You have absolutely nothing to gain by being anxious. And you have everything to lose, as we stated earlier. I like how one author puts it. I think the quote might be up there. He says, worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. And this one is a visceral one. There's a Jewish proverb that says, worms eat you when you're dead. Worries eat you when you're alive. I think it's so true. Argument number three, life is about more than food and clothes. Life is about more than food and clothes. Now, I don't mean to get all existential all of a sudden, but Jesus does, so we have to go there. He literally deals with the question, what's the meaning of life? Like, how would you answer that, right? SAT question, what's the meaning of life? I don't know, right? That's a very complex question. But look at verse 25. He says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, drink, nor about what you put on. Is not life... More than food. And the body more than clothing. What Jesus is saying here is if we become fixated and overly anxious about food and clothing as the highest priority in life, you have totally derailed the type of life that Jesus intends for you to live. That's what he's saying here. Now, if you want proof that, because nobody consciously says, oh, you know what life is about? It's about what I eat, what I drink, and what I wear. But can I show you how this has crept into society and culture at large and how we drink that Kool-Aid? Go to any grocery store, go to any Target, go to any Walmart, go, don't go to the self-checkout, wait in the normal line, look at the magazine covers and see what the headlines say. They say stuff like, top 10 hottest new restaurants in Orange County, five tips to get back that summer bod, hottest fashion trends taking over Instagram, 
These do not sound hypothetical. Why? Because this is literally what the world is about. What you're going to eat, what your body look like. And if I could sum it up, it is an utter obsession with the self. Now, how does this show up in our life? If you aren't convinced, literally think about what you worry about most frequently on a regular basis. If I can audit your life and the words that come out of your mouth, I guarantee you one of the top three things that you ask is this, isn't it? Hey, what should we eat? Hey, what do you feel like eating? What should we get for dessert? Should we get boba? Should we get shave ice? Hey, you want to go get some beer? You want to go to a brewery? I heard there's a new brewery in town. Let's go check it out. Isn't that literally what consumes our worries? Well, hey, there's a Nike sale, Zara sale, Madewell sale, Sephora sale, Uniqlo sale, Target sale, Black Friday, or for brothers more recently, golf equipment, golf gear, my goodness. We have become so materialistic to the point we don't even realize how consumed we are and worried we are about material things that Jesus says that's not what life is about in the kingdom. Now, this is not to say that food, drink, and clothing are not parts of life, but Jesus is saying, is not life more than that? Life is not less than those things, but Jesus' followers, it should be so much more, he's saying. Our cares, our concerns, and worries should elevate beyond the level of menial materialistic things. And the reason is in verse 31. He says, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat, drink, or wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Here's what he's saying. In context, Gentiles simply refer to people who do not believe in God. They don't follow God. And Jesus is saying, as a professing God believer who trusts in God, if the things that you worry about and are anxious about are no different than the person who says, there is no God, I don't care, there is no God who is uh, watching over me, there's no Heavenly Father who cares, Jesus is saying there's a problem. Because you profess to be a child of a heavenly caring father who knows your needs and who has proven throughout redemptive history that he is a provider. Which leads to the fourth argument against being anxious. Worrying is incompatible with kingdom living. Incompatible with kingdom living. Remember, the entire theme of the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing is he is coloring in and fleshing out and painting a picture of what the values, the mindset, the lifestyle, and the culture of God's kingdom people ought to have. That's what he's doing. And so this text, unlike maybe how you've heard it before, it is not an isolated topical teaching on how Jesus just wants you to not have anxiety and he wants you to just be peaceful. That's not what it's talking about here, right? Like I've heard that preached before when I was in youth group. There would be this kind of like little older bro youth teacher and he'd be like, hey, you're anxious, look at the birds, bro. Don't be anxious. And that would be my takeaway. Like, oh, okay, I guess like I, I, God cares about me because he cares about birds. No, that's not the context of what's going on here. If you haven't noticed, the pattern of kingdom living by definition is that it stands in stark contrast to the world. That's the case Jesus is making throughout the sermon. That's why he says, Christians, you shine, and Christians, you're salty. That's why you'll see him say things like, those in the world live like this, those in my kingdom live like this. The world has a certain version of blessing, my kingdom has an opposite version of blessing. Those in the world only love those who love them, in my kingdom we love even our enemies. Those in the world, they do things to be seen by people. Those in my kingdom do things to be seen by God. And in that same pattern, Jesus says, those in the world are worried about these menial things. But those in my kingdom know they have a heavenly father who provides and cares for their basic needs. Which leads to the famous climax of this passage. So Jesus, 
we can ask, if Jesus, if you're saying we shouldn't worry about what to eat, drink, or wear, so what should we worry about? What should we be concerned about? What is this so much more to life that you're referring to? Verse 33. Don't do all that, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. If there is any verse, you should tattoo. Actually, don't get a tattoo. Bad advice. If there's any verse that you should sharpie onto your hand, this is it. Because if you're a real Christian sitting here today, according to Jesus, this is what discipleship is all about. This verse essentially sums up everything Jesus has been talking about to this point in the sermon. That the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not as two separate pursuits, but as a unified singular goal, is at the heart of what a disciple wants. Now, it's a loaded statement, so let's break it down piece by piece. What is meant by kingdom? If you haven't been following, a kingdom of God simply means the rule and the reign of Jesus as the authoritative king. His word is authoritative. Second, what is meant by righteousness? Everything Jesus has been talking about. Not just external religiosity, but internal righteousness that goes way beyond just what you do, but literally who you are. Number three, what does it mean to seek, therefore? Seek is referring to a present, ongoing, unceasing desire and quest. In other words, you are perpetually seeking as a kingdom disciple these things. And lastly, what does first mean? Let me start by sharing what it doesn't mean. It's not talking about a chronological order of importance. Where, okay, so God's first, and then family second, friends third, hobbies fourth. That's not what it's talking about here. The word first here refers to the idea of singularity and utter priority. Because what that means is that God's kingdom and his righteousness takes first in every part of your life. What does that look like? In your family, seek the kingdom and his righteousness first. In your marriage, seek the kingdom and his righteousness first. In your workplace, seek the kingdom and his righteousness first. In your friendships, in public, in private, in marriage, in church, outside of church, good times, bad times, seek first his rule, his reign, his authority, and his righteousness. And the promise is that everything else, God will take care of you. In other words, the concern and preoccupation of the Christian, according to Jesus, ought to always be the concrete belief and application of the reign and righteousness of Jesus wherever you are. So for arguments, you're more valuable than birds and flowers. Being anxious is quite literally a waste of time. Life is about more than food and clothes. And it's incompatible with kingdom living, which leads to the third point. What is the antidote? Now, I use that word and concept intentionally. But I think in a way, it's reasonable to view chronic worry and anxiety as, as kind of like a disease. It has very similar characteristics to a disease. It literally harasses your soul physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And the interesting thing about an antidote is the only way to find a cure, an antidote to something, is you have to properly study and understand the disease. Right? So you can't get an antidote if you don't know what the disease is. I hope that's true. I'm not a scientist, but that's what I read, okay? <laughs> now, the world has spent countless resources, money, and research to tackle the issue of anxiety. And quite frankly, the polls are showing it's not working. So this disease is getting worse. It is spreading rampantly. This is where I love that Jesus says, I am the great physician. I know a little thing or two about health in my people. I know what they need to be healthy, which is what he wants. And so Jesus, the great physician, says something very important regarding this disease and problem, which is pivotal to identifying the antidote. In the end of verse 30, there's a significant detail 
And you'll miss it if you're not careful. After talking about his arguments, Jesus says, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today and tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? Here's the problem and the disease. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. You see, the world will look at your worrying and say, you know what it is? It's probably a mental problem. You know what you should do? You should uh, try meditation. Or you should uh, practice relaxation techniques. Others will say, you know, it's probably like an emotional baggage problem. Why don't you go seek out therapy? Now, I'm not trying to talk down on these things. I think they are helpful. They have an appropriate place. But is that the root of it, according to Jesus? Jesus seems to be saying the reason you are anxious ultimately and so overly worried is because you have a faith deficiency. That's what he says. This is massive. It means our over-worrying, our chronic anxiousness is first and foremost a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. And the disease Jesus is trying to remedy is an unhealthy fixation on earthly things when we were intended for an eternal thing. That is the brokenness that happened in Eden. You know, the paradise of Eden that I look forward to after studying this text, more than anything else, went into heaven, more than just not even having sin or having a big mansion in heaven. Heaven, there is no anxiety, there's no worry. There's no stress. That's paradise. And this is where it's important to understand that this passage, remember I said oftentimes it's kind of disproportionately emphasized because the whole passage in verse 25, I don't know if you caught it, it starts with the word therefore. Basic grammar. It means it is not an isolated unit of thought. It is connected to something before. And this entire text is connected to the previous one, which was preached on last week, which basically deals with three primary questions that serve as the precursor to this promise of being anxiety-free, which is, where do you treasure? Do you treasure earthly things or heavenly things? Number two, what are you filling your eyes with? Light or darkness? And number three, most importantly, who's your master? God or money? You see these three things that Jesus presents. And the antidote to anxiety, it is predicated on how you choose to answer those questions. Jesus, the great physician, like any good doctor would, he's saying, look, there's two ways to live now, right? If I can use an example, you can stuff yourself with junk, you can not care about exercise, and that's a choice you make, and that's going to lead to health problems. Or you can care to think that I know what I'm talking about, and you can care about health, you can get your regular checkups, and you'll be much happier and healthier as a result up to you. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying there's a worldly life and a kingdom life. The worldly life will live for earthly treasures, which he says, that's not a good way to go. Roth and must will come to, a moth and rust will destroy it. It will deteriorate. It will be at loss. Number two, you can fix your eyes in the world, but let me tell you, that's going to lead to darkness and discontentment. And number three, you can be all about money, but when you get enslaved to money, you're going to be miserable. That's what Jesus is saying. But Jesus does not force anyone into his kingdom. He says, but if that's what you want to do, be my guest. But what he does do is he offers an alternative way, a better way, a healthier way, an anxiety-free way, which he says, my kingdom, you can live for heavenly treasures that are eternal and secure, where moth and rust do not destroy. The ebbs and flows of the stock market do not affect your heavenly treasures. You can fix your eyes on things above and as a result of that, as you look up, the worries of this world will not fill you with darkness, but you'll be filled with light. And thirdly, you can enjoy the freedom that money is not your master, but I, your gracious father, I am your master. And if I care for birds and lilies, I will for sure care for you. And that's the paradox. 
the antidote and the disease are two sides of the same coin. The disease that leads to anxiousness and worry is a deficiency of faith and trust. And the antidote is an increase of faith and trust. If that's true, what this means, it is not enough. Please listen to this. It's not enough to just listen to God's words and promises. If that were sufficient for discipleship, all of you guys would be super Christians. Because most of you guys attend every Sunday. You hear me and Pastor Tom exposit God's word. You listen to it. You mentally assent to it at times. You talk about it in community groups. And I will say very boldly, some of you guys haven't transformed one bit. So it's clearly not just about listening to God's word. And the Bible never says that's all it is. You need to believe in God's word. You need to trust in his promises. Let me give you an example of how this plays out. Let's say one of our elementary age children, you know, comes like uh, our education director, he has two kids. His daughter's two and a half, Abby. Cute girl, sweetheart. So Abby comes up to me and says, Pastor Sam, let me babysit your son, Ezra. I know what it takes. I'm a baby myself. Take care of it. You just go on a date night. Leave me the keys. I'll take care of it. Now, let's say in some weird alternate universe, I say, all right. <laughs> and I take the deal. She gives me these words and promise. I don't believe it. You know why? Because the entire night I'm out, you know what's happening? I'm filled with worry. I'm anxious. I'm checking my baby monitor. I'm going to rush home because I cannot trust those words. This child does not have the experience and the qualifications to help me to really be liberated from my anxiety over my son's well-being. That's how some of you guys approach God's word. But let's say Angela's mom, a.k.a. grandma, who's always competing for number one on the list, right? Like me against grandma versus Angela. It's like this trinity of competition. Like who does baby like best? Grandma always wins. So let's say she says, hey, you guys go out. I'll watch Ezra. You know what's going to happen? I will leave the house and I will forget about my son. <laughs> Legitimately for three hours. I will focus on what's in front of me. I will care about the Korean barbecue we're about to enjoy. And I could care less. I will shut off the power to the, to the baby monitor because same promises, same words, but grandma's word is trustworthy. Grandma has experience. Grandma has a track record which liberates me from anxiety. Same thing goes with God's word. Some of you guys think that I come up here and I'm giving you my opinion. Let me tell you, if I come up here and I'm giving you my opinion, don't trust anything I say. I'm probably more sinful than you are. You have every right to be like, okay, well, that's what he thinks. But if every Sunday, which we hope to do before God, we are proving to you that, hey, this is God's word, not our word, that God himself is promising these things, what I am pleading to you as a pastor and minister of God's word is, don't trust me. Trust me in the sense that I am trusting to give God's word to you. Trust God. And today, above all else, it's one thing for me to say, you know, the Heavenly Father cares for you. But today in our text, it is special. Because Jesus himself says, the Heavenly Father cares for you. A little more credibility when the Son of God says it himself. So the antidote to worry and anxiety is not a simplistic call to just stop or just chill out. But instead, here's the beauty. The world says, you know what you have to do with anxiety? You have to cope with it. It's like a backpack you have to carry. But the promise in 1 Peter is cast it to God. Throw it to God. 
In the same way that I cast Ezra to grandma, you can cast your worries to God and trust his word that he is qualified to provide you what you need. The problem is many of us don't even give him the chance to do it. Which leads to a couple practical applications. Number one, this comes straight from the text in verse 34. Practical application number one for a Christian. Therefore, live for today. Verse 34, that's the application. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today its own trouble. Charles Spurgeon, looking at this text, he says this very apt quote. He says, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. One way I think you can practice this is to be present in the moment. Some of you guys right now are not here. You're at that meeting you're going to have tomorrow. You're at that concerning business meeting you're going to have next week. You're thinking about your entire schedule on Wednesday. You're not present. And the worst of the world has to live that way. Let me give you a symptom if this is you. If you are perpetually living in a state of planning and preparing for what is to come, rather than seeking to be present where you are in the moment, in the situation, in the relationship in front of you, this applies to you. See, some of you place so much faith, and I have people in mind here, okay? You place so much faith in your perception of how things are going to turn out. It's almost like your prediction is the word of God. So you think, oh, this is what's going to happen on Monday. This is what's going to happen on Wednesday. I'm not going to do that because this is what's going to lead to. And more often than not, these people are miserable. You know why? Because these people are usually very fatalistic. Things are not going to go well. Things are not going to turn out okay. And so these people, without realizing it, two things that you shouldn't do that because, number one, you don't realize how damaging that is to your mental, spiritual, and emotional health. You're perpetually anxious. You're so high strung. I would not be surprised if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, if you're not careful with this, it's going to lead to some legitimate issues. I really think that. But secondly, it absolutely paralyzes you and neutralizes you from being able to live a life of faith. And the kingdom is predicated on people who live by faith. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. No matter how confident we think we are in a prediction. So the call of the kingdom is to therefore right now seek his rule, seek his righteousness, and love and serve in front of you today. And Jesus said, that's plenty to worry about. I may very well return tomorrow. So you know what that very practical application, for example, like when you're at the park, just be at the park. Just be there. When you're loving and serving your family, just be there. Tomorrow will take care of itself. It's not saying be irresponsible, but if you're so overly consumed by the past and the future, you cannot be here now. And God needs his people to be here now. Famous quote, I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. Such an encouraging text. Number two, application, combat your slavery to money. Now, this comes straight from the text, okay? Remember, the crux of this text was in verse 24, Jesus presents this option. You cannot serve God in money. You either serve God or you serve money. And this is so true. Almost every poll and survey I saw, the biggest stressors for every generation, and it's increasingly becoming so, all revolves around money. There is no topic that is more anxiety-inducing than money. The top three things that Gen Z said is stressful to them, it's career, it's financial stability, it's economy, it's retirement. And so this is just my personal application. But I think one way to strengthen God's kingdom rule in your heart is to weaken intentionally the power and rule that money has in your life. 
And I think the biblical application for how to do that, you might hate to hear this, but it's clear. How do you give up mastery of money in your life? You've got to give it away. That is the biblical prescription. You have to generously give it away. I recently attended a conference. There was a speaker. His name was Tom Lin. He's the InterVarsity president, very, very prolific, famous uh, campus minister across the U.S. And I was so challenged by him. He shared how he and his wife, thinking about that and how generosity is just a very important value to the kingdom of God, he said what they did to practically apply this is he and his wife created something called a generosity fund. And what that is is when they do their monthly finances, they literally budget for a generosity fund to give away. And they said there has been nothing more life-giving then to every month sit down and talk with his wife and say, huh, who can we bless this month? Who can we give money away to this month? And he would say God would bring up situations very clearly. Someone in the church would lose their car and he'd say, hey, let's, let's donate to them so they can get a new car. And he said that is so much more life-giving than hoarding a little more money. Giving it away, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And not only that, by doing that, you are decreasing the mastery of money and you're increasing the seeking of the kingdom of God and trusting that, man, even if I give away a little money this month, God's still going to take care of me. It's my father. You see what's going on there? Which leads to the third and final application. Invest in eternity. Take some time to reflect and take inventory of what worries consume your mind and your heart on a regular basis. Now contrast those worries to those of the people who don't know God. Is there any difference at all? Because there should be, according to Jesus. You see, the call of the kingdom is to lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. So what might that look like? It might look like in your marriage, for example, as you meet with your spouse to talk about your meal plan for the week and that fun trip that you want to go on or that weekender that you have planned, you also are burdened to consider, hey, how can we... Uh, Seek God's kingdom together this month. How can we pursue righteousness? See, I notice the righteousness that God wants from us. We're not really exhibiting that. We're not really loving. We're having a lot of hatred in our hearts and bitterness. Can we, can we talk about that? Let's seek God's kingdom and rule and reign together because I think we're, we're kind of diverting from that. Or parents. I know this is always a, a touchy topic for myself included, but amongst the worldly investments that you're giving in your child's athletic development and academic growth, all good things, but you also want to invest in their eternity, in their spiritual health. But hey, let's, let's talk about uh, scripture. Let's talk about God's, how he provided for our family. Let's talk about the gospel. Remember, Jesus made it clear in the chapter that heavenly reward is tied to genuine spiritual acts. There's nothing supernatural about it. It's just including kingdom living in your day-to-day -day life. There's so much more that can be said, but I think it boils down, quite frankly, to this just one question. Are you living as if this life is all there is? Or are you living as if there's a kingdom to come? Because worry and anxiety, it is birthed out of temporal, earthly, fleeting living. The rest of the world is plagued to that because they know nothing else. And we as a church claim to and profess that we have a better way. And we need to live that, not just in theory and concept, but really in our life. And the beauty of God's provision is what? Just like grandma what is God's track record? It's something called the gospel. He's the greatest guarantee and promise of all. It's not arbitrary, but Romans 8.32 says this, and we'll close here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave you everything. What else could he hold back from you?
food, money, clothing. He is your heavenly father. And you are far more valuable than birds and flowers. And he wants you to live in that way for your health and for the health of the community and the world. So as I invite the praise team up, if we can just close in prayer and a time of quick reflection. Can I invite you to ask, man, what are you consumed by these days? What are you worried about? Again, in the world, we have to carry our burdens and cope with them. But in the kingdom of God, God says, you have a father who wants you to cast them. It is an invitation. It is a beautiful one. And not just to do it in religious practice, but to believe that my burdens and worries are, they are at the foot of Jesus now. I don't have to be bound by this. And let's pray that we can grow to live life in a way that seeks God's kingdom and righteousness tangibly above all else. Let's take a moment and then I'll close this in prayer.